Hi, my name is Matt Bingle. I am the creator, writer, and executive producer of Monster Adventures. We hope you enjoyed the first two episodes. For those who were expecting an episode on October 13th, we want to apologize that there was not an episode. Uh, We usually schedule it every other Wednesday. Uh, There was not an episode on October 13th because of midterm exams. For those who don't know, I am a college student currently going for my associate's degree in accounting, and I graduate in 2022. June 2022 specifically. So apologies to those who were expecting an episode on the 13th of October. This episode's a unique one because Halloween is this weekend. For those who are listening to this after Halloween, don't worry about that particular part. But this episode's a unique one because I, for one, am not really interested in horror, but I do like the Halloween season. These stories were from 25 Ghost Stories, compiled and edited by W.B. Holland, Uh, This is a very old compilation of ghost stories. It was released all the way back in 1904, and uh, it's in the public domain, so we're good there. Sit back, relax, and enjoy these stories, and leave us a review. Let us know what you think of this podcast. Enjoy, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks a lot. And now, Bingo Productions is proud to present Monster Adventures, starring Marty Monster, Julius, and Parsley. Each episode a fun new adventure. On this edition of Monster Adventures, it's Halloween weekend. And while they prepare to go to a haunted house, which, spoiler alert, eventually gets canceled due to inclement weather, they come up with another plan. What is that, you may ask? Ghost Stories. Ladies and gentlemen, we have an announcement to make. Tonight would have been the first night in the 24th annual Monsterville Outdoor Haunted House. However, due to inclement weather, that has been canceled this evening. Aww, Aww, I was looking forward to that. Monsters who paid to attend tonight's event will be refunded. We apologize for the inconvenience. Yeah, but I was really looking forward to going tonight. I remember when I was a kid and we'd go there every year. Ah, uh, don't worry about it. Maybe we could go tomorrow night? Oh, I can't do it tomorrow night. I gotta work tomorrow night. On a Saturday night? Co-workers called sick. We're short-staffed. That's a shame. Marty, what are we gonna do tomorrow night? Since Parsley's not gonna be here, we can't go tomorrow night. We don't want to leave Parsley out. Can't go Sunday either, because you're going to visit your grandparents. Yeah, that's true. I forgot about that. You know what? We'll go next weekend. Weather's supposed to be perfect. I end a full moon. Oh, dear. What do you mean, oh, dear? The weather's supposed to be perfect. Isn't that a good thing? Well, yes, that's great, but the full moon. He's right, you know. Well, now what do we do? We could tell some stories. Like, uh, Romeo and Juliet? No why? That's too long. And not enough monsters. I see your point. How about some ghost stories instead? I could go for a story. Okay, sure. Who wants to go first? Why don't you go first? Me? Sure. Why not? Okay, I, I guess I will. I have one I remember from an old man I worked for a while back. Wait a minute, you worked for an old man? I entered for a retirement home. 
just to get some work experience. Interesting. I didn't know that. I did. Well, anyway, the story is called One the evening about eight hand. months ago, I met and with some college comrades like at the lodging of our friend Lewis. We drank punch and smoked, talked of literature and art, and made jokes like any other company of young men. Suddenly the door flew open and one who had been my friend since boyhood burst in like a hurricane. Guess where I came from, he cried. I've been on the Mabel, responded one. No, said another. You are too gay. You come from borrowing money, from burying a rich uncle, or from pawning your watch. You are getting sober, cried a third. And as you ascended the punch in Lewis's room, you came up here to get drunk again. You are all wrong, he replied. I come from P in Normandy, where I have spent eight days, and whence I have brought one of my friends, a great criminal, who I ask permission to present to you. With these words, he drew from his pocket a long black hand from which the skin head had been stripped. It had been severed at the wrist. Its dry and shriveled shape and the narrow yellow nails, still clinging to the fingers, made it frightful to look upon. The muscles which show that its first owner had been possessed of great strength were bound in place by a strip of parchment-like skin. Just fancy, said my friend. The other day they sold the effects of an old sorcerer, recently deceased, well known in all the country. Every Saturday night he used to go to witch gatherings on a broomstick. He practiced the white magic in the black, gave blue milk to the cows, and made them more tales like that of the companion of St. Anthony. The old scoundrel always had a deep affection for this hand, which, he said, was that of a celebrated criminal, executed in 1736 for having thrown his lawful wife head first into a well, for which I do not blame him, and then hanging in the belfry the priest who had married him. After this double exploit, he went away, and during his subsequent career, which was brief but exciting, he robbed twelve travelers, smoked a score of monks in their monastery, and made a serglio of a convent. But what are you going to do with all this horror? we cried. Eh, parbleu, I will make it the handle to my doorbell and frighten my creditors. My friend, said Henry Smith, a big, phlegmatic Englishman. I believe that this hand is only a kind of Indian meat preserved by a new process. I advise you to make bouillon of it. Rail not, messieurs, said with the utmost sang Freud, a medical student who was three-quarters drunk. But if you follow my advice, Pierre, you will give this piece of human debris Christian burial for fear lest its owner should come to demand it. Then, too, this hand has acquired me some bad habits, for you know the proverb, who has killed, will kill. And who has drank, will drink, replied the host as he poured out a big glass of punch for the student, who emptied it at a draught and slid dead drunk under the table. His son dropping out of the company was greeted with a burst of laughter, and Pierre, raising his glass and saluting the hand, cried, I drink to the next visit of thy master. Then the conversation turned upon other subjects, and shortly after each returned to his lodgings. About two o'clock the next day, as I was passing Pierre's door, I entered and found him reading and smoking. Well, how goes it? said I. Very well, he responded. And your hand? My hand, 
Did you not see it on the bell pool? I put it there when I returned home last night. But of this, what do you think? Some idiot, doubtless to play a stupid joke on me, came ringing at my door towards midnight. I demanded who was there, but no one replied. I went back to bed again and to sleep. At this moment, the door opened and the landlord, a fat and extremely impertinent person, entered without saluting us. Sir, said he, I pray to take away immediately the carrion which you have hung to your bell pull. Unless you do this, I shall be compelled to ask you to leave. Sir, responded Pierre, with much gravity, you insult a hand which does not merit it. No, you, that it belonged to a man of high breeding. The landlord turned on his heel and made his exit. Without speaking, Pierre followed him, detached the hand and affixed of it to the bell cord hanging in his alcove. That is better, he said. This hand, like the brother, all must die of the trappist, will give my thoughts a serious turn every night before I sleep. At the end of the hour, I left him and returned to my own apartment. I slept badly the following night, was nervous and agitated, and several times awoke with a start. Once I imagined, even, that a man had broken into my room, and I sprang up and searched the closets and under the bed. Towards six o'clock in the morning, I was commencing to doze at last, when a loud knocking at my door made me jump from my couch. It was my friend Pierre's servant, half-dressed, pale and trembling. Ah, oh, sir, cried he, sobbing. My poor master, someone has murdered him. I dressed myself hastily and ran to Pierre's lodgings. The house was full of people disputing together, and everything was in commotion. Everyone was talking at the same time, recounting and commenting on the occurrence in all sorts of ways. With great difficulty, I reached the bedroom, made myself known to those guarding the door, and was permitted to enter. Four agents of police were standing in the middle of the apartment, pencils in hand, examining every detail, conferring in low voices and writing from time to time in their notebooks. Two doctors were in consultation by the bed, on which lay the unconscious forms of Pierre. He was not dead but his face was fixed in an expression of the most awful terror. His eyes were open their widest, and the dilated pupils seemed to regard fixedly with unspeakable horror something unknown and frightful. His hands were clenched, I raised the quilt which covered his body from the chin downwards, and saw on his neck, deeply sunk in the flesh, the marks of fingers. Some drops of blood spotted on his shirt. At that moment, one thing struck me. I chanced to notice that the shriveled hand was no longer attached to the bell cord. The doctors had doubtless removed it to avoid the comments of those entering the chamber where the wounded man lay, because the appearance of this hand was indeed frightful. I did not inquire what had become of it. I now quit from a newspaper of the next day the story of the crime with all the details that the police were able to procure. A frightful attempt was made yesterday on the life of M. Pierre B., student, who belongs to one of the best families in Normandy. He returned home at about ten o'clock in the evening and excused his valet, Bovin, from further attendance upon him, saying that he had felt fatigued and was going to bed. Towards midnight, Bovin was suddenly awakened by the furious ringing of his master's bell. He was afraid and lighted a lamp and waited. The bell was silent about a minute, then rang again with such vehemence that the domestic, mad with fright, flew from his room to awaken the consurgents, who ran to some of the police. And at the end of about fifteen minutes, two policemen forced to open the door. A horrible sight met their eyes. The furniture was overturned, giving evidence of a fearful struggle between the victim and his assailant. 
in the middle of the room upon his back, his body rigged with livid face and frightfully dilated eyes, lay motionly young Pierre, bearing upon his neck the deep imprints of five fingers. Dr. Borden was called immediately, and his report said the aggressor must have been possessed of prodigious strength and have had such an extraordinary thin and sinewy hand because the fingers left in the flesh of the victim five holes like those from a pistol ball and had penetrated until they had almost met. There is no clue to the motive of the crime or to its perpetrator. The police are making a thorough investigation. The following appeared in the newspaper next day. Miss Dear Pierre, the victim of the frightful assault of which we published an account yesterday, has regained consciousness after two hours of the most assiduous care by Dr. Bourdine. His life is not in danger, but it is strongly feared that he has lost his reason. No trace has been found of his assailant. My poor friend was indeed insane. For seven months I visited him daily at the hospital where we had placed him, but he did not recover the light of reason. In his delirium, strange words escaped him, and like all madmen, he had one fixed idea. He believed himself continually pursued by a specter. One day they came for me in haste, saying he was worse, and when I arrived I found him dying. For two hours he remained very calm. Then, suddenly rising from his bed in spite of our efforts, he cried, waving his arms as if a prey to the most awful terror. Take it away! Take it away! It strangles me! Help! Help! Twice he made the circuit of the room, uttering horrible screams, then fell face downward, dead. As he was an orphan, I was charged to take his body to the little village in Normandy, where his parents were buried. It was the place from which he had arrived the evening he found us drinking punch in Louis's room, where he had presented to us the flayed hand. His body was enclosed in a linen coffin, and four days afterwards I walked sadly beside the old cure, who had given him his first lessons to the little cemetery where they dug his grave. It was a beautiful day, and sunshine from a cloudless sky flooded the earth. Birds sang from the blackberry bushes from where many a time, when we were children, we had stolen to eat the fruit. Again I saw Pierre and myself creeping along the hedge and slipping through the gap that we knew so well, down to the end of the little plot where they bury the poor. Again we would return to the house with cheeks and lips black with the juice of the berries we had eaten. I looked at the bushes. They were covered with fruit. Maniacally I picked some and bore to my mouth. The cure had opened its beverage, and I was muttering his prayers in a low voice. I heard at the end of the walk the spades of the grave diggers who were opening the tomb. Suddenly they called out. The cure closed his book, and we went to see what they wished of us. They had found a coffin in digging a stroke of the pickaxe they had started the cover, and we perceived within a skeleton of unusual stature lying on its back, its hollow eyes seeming yet to menace and defy us. I was troubled, I know not why, and almost afraid. Hold! cried one of the men. Look there! One of the rascal's hands had been severed at the wrist. Ah, here it is. And he picked up from beside the body a huge withered hand and held it out to us. See? cried the other, laughing. See how he glares at you as if he would spring at your throat to make you give him back his hand? Go, said the cure. Leave the dead in peace and close the coffin. We will make poor Pierre's grave elsewhere. 
The next day all was finished, and I returned to Paris. After having left fifty francs with the old cure for masses to be said for the repose of the soul of him whose self-cure we had troubled. Very interesting. Okay, who wants to go next? I'll go next. Alright. This one's called the Spectra Bride. The winter night up at Salt St. Marie are as wide as luminous as the Milky Way. The silence that rests upon the solitude appears to be white also. Nature has included sound in her investment. Save the still white frost, all things are obliterated. The stars are there, but they seem to belong to heaven and not to earth. They are at immeasurable height, and so black is the night that a pack either rolls between them and the observer in great liquid billows. In such a place, it is difficult to believe that the world is peopled to any great extent. One fancies that Cain just killed Abel, and that there is need for the greatest economy in the matter of human life. The night that Ralph Hagedorn started out for Echo Bay, he felt as if he were the only man in the world. So complete was the solitude for which he was passing. He was going over to attend the wedding of his best friend, and was, in fact, to act as the groomsman. Business had delayed him and was compelled to make his journey at night, but he hadn't gone far before he began to feel the exhilaration of the skater. The skates were keen, his legs fit for a longer journey than the one he had undertaken, and the tang of the frost was to him what a spur is to a spirited horse. He cut through the air as the sharp stone cleaves the water. He could feel the tumult of the air as he collected. As he went on, he began to have fancies. Seeing him as he was enormously tall, the great Viking of the Northland hastened over icy fjords to his love. That reminded him they had in love, though indeed that thought was always present with him as a background for other thoughts. To be sure, he had not told her she was his love, because he had only seen her a few times and the opportunity had not presented itself. She lived to Echo Bay too, and was to be the maid of honor of his French bride, which was another reason why he skated on almost swiftly as the wind and wide now and then he let out a shout of exhilaration. The one drawback in the matter was that Marie Biojo's father had money, and that Marie lived in the fine house and wore otter skin about her throat, and little satin lined mink boots on her feet when she went sledding, and that the jacket in which she kept a bit of her dead mother's hair had a black pearl in it as big as a pea. These things made it difficult, nay impossible, for Ralph Hagedorn to say anything more than I love you. For that meant he had to have the satisfaction of saying, no matter what came of it. With this determination growing upon him, he swept along the ice which gleamed under the starlight. Indeed, Venus made a glowing path toward the west and seemed to reassure him. He was sorry he could not skin down that avenue of light from the love star, but he was forced to turn his back upon a face toward the northeast. It came to him with a shock that he was not alone. His eyelashes were a good deal frosted and his eyeballs blurred with the cold. And at first he thought it was an illusion, but he rubbed his eyes hard and at length to make sure that not very far in front of him was a long white skitter in fluttering garments who sped over the snows fast as ever where Wolf went. He called aloud, but there was no answer, and then he gave chase, setting his teeth hard and putting attention on his firm young muscles. But however fast he might go, the white skitter went faster. After a time, he became convinced as he chanced to glare for a second at the North Star that the white skitter was leading him out of his direct path. For a moment he hesitated, wondering if he should not keep to his road, but the strange companion seemed to draw him irresistibly. 
and so he followed. Of course, it came to him more than one that this might be no earthly guide. Up in the latitudes, men see strange things when the high frost is on the earth. Hagedorn's father, who lived up there with the Lake Superior Indians and worked in the copper mines, had once welcomed a woman in his hut on a bitter night who was gone by morning and who left wolf tracks in the snow. Yes, it was so. And John Fontalet, the half-breed, could tell you about it any day if you were alive. I like the snow where the wolf tracks were is melted now. Well, Hagedorn followed the white skater all the night, and when the ice flushed red at dawn, the arrows of lovely light shot up into the cold heavens. She was gone, and Hagedorn was at his destination. Then, as he took off his skates, while the sun climbed arrogantly up to his place above all other things, Hagedorn chanced to glance lakeward, and he saw there was a great wind rift in the ice, and that the waves showed blue as sapphires beside the gleaming ice. Had he swept along his intended path, watching the stars to guide him, his glance turned upward, all his body a magnificent momentum. He must certainly have gone up into the gold grave. The white skater had been his guardian angel. Much impressed, he went up to his friend's house, expecting to find there the pleasant furor. But someone met him quietly at the door, and his friend came downstairs with a solemn demeanor. Is that your wedding face? cried Hagedorn. Why, really, if this is the way you are affected, the sooner I take warning, the better. There is no wedding today, said his friend. No wedding? Why, you're not... Marie Beaujol died last night. Marie died last night. She had been skidding the afternoon. She came home chilled and wandered in her mind, as if the frost had got in somehow. She got worse and worse and talked all the time of you. Of me? We wondered what it all meant. We didn't know you were lovers. I didn't know it myself. More's the pity. She said you were on the ice. She said you didn't know about the big breaking up, and she cried to us that the wind was offshore. Then she cried you could come in by the old French creek if only you knew. I came in that way, interrupted Hagendorn. How did you come to do that? out of your way. So Agadorn told him how kind to pass, and that day they watched beside the maiden who had tapers at her head and feet, and over in the little church the bride who might have been at her wedding said prayers for her friend. Then they buried her in her bridesmaid's white, and Agadorn was there before the altar with her, as he attended from the first. At midnight, the day of the burial, her friends were married in the gloom of the cold church and they walked together through the snow to lay their bridal's wreath on her grave. Three nights later, Hagedorn started back again to his home. They wanted him to go by sunlight, but he had his way, and went when Venus made her bright path on the ice. He hoped for the companionship of the white skater, but he did not have it. His only companion was the wind. The only voice he heard was the bang of a wolf on the north shore. The world was as white as if it had just been created, and the sun had not yet colored, nor man defiled it. Well, well, well. Alrighty. This one's called An Unbidden Guest. I heard this one a while back, and it goes a little something like this. 
My cousins, Kate and Tom Howard, married at Trinity at Easter time, concluded to commence housekeeping by taking one of those delightfully expensively furnished unfurnished cottages with which the fashionable water place of Waterloo abounds, from whose rear windows one might almost take a plunge into the surf, the beach beginning at the back door. They went down quite early in May, being in a great hurry to try their domestic experiment, and as the evenings were still cold, they spent them about the open fire, spooning. It was upon one of those nights, about eleven o'clock, that they were startled by a noise, as of some small object falling, soon followed by the sound of heavy footsteps, and then quiet again reigned supreme. At once Tom, poker in hand, boldly started in search of the burglar, followed by Kate, wildly clutching at his coat tail, and in a state of tremor they looked upstairs under the various beds, Kate suggesting that in novels they were always to be found there. The dining room was next explored, where all seemed well, and lastly the kitchen, where they found what evidently a solution to the mystery. The burglar had entered the back door, which was found to be unlocked and slightly ajar. The first excitement subsiding, they returned again to the dining room, where Tom, upon closer inspection, then discovered that one of a pair of quaint little pepper pots, wedding gifts, was missing, and other small articles on the sideboard had been slightly disturbed. The next morning, when Kate mildly remonstrated with the queen of the kitchen for her carelessness, she received a shock by being told that it was her usual custom to leave the door open so that it would be easy, convenient, low-key for the milkmaid. They parted with her, and a new maid was engaged, whose chief qualification for the place was that she was most faithful in the discharge of her duties, especially in locking up. While they mourned the loss of their pepper pot, still it seemed so trifling when they thought of that lovely repost salad bowl sent by Aunt Julia, which stood nearby, that nothing was said of the loss outside of the family, and the little household settled into its normal state once more of billing and cooing. About a fortnight later, Tom started out one night with an old fisherman, one of the natives, and a local character, to indulge in that delightful pastime, so dear to the heart of man, known as eeling, and as the night was dark, the eels were particularly sporty, so that it was well on towards the wee small hours when Tom at last returned to the cottage. He found all excitement within, Kate was in hysterics, and the new maid, also weeping, was industriously applying the campor bottle to her mistress's nose, the burglar, or ghost, as they had now decided. The windows and doors being found to be securely locked this time had been abroad again, but had succeeded in purloining nothing. His royal ghost ship had amused himself, apparently by simply walking about. Uncle Tom, he had such heavy boots and was so dreadfully bold about it said Kate tearfully. From that time, Kate became nervous and refused to be left alone. Tom started whenever a door creaked, and the treasure departed hurriedly, saying, Faith, the house is haunted, sure. After that, Kate spent her days in girl hunting, and her nights in answering shadowy advertisements that never materialized. They tried Irish, English, Dutch, and a heathen Chinese, with a sprinkling of colored ladies to vary the monotony. They seemed about to become famous throughout the length and breadth of the land as the family that changes help once a week when they landed treasure number two. Shortly after Advent, we were all asked down to Waterloo to help celebrate their happiness and incidentally to christen the new dinner set. 
We were not a little surprised at finding Kate so pale and Tom rather distrait. However, after a delightful dinner that should have filled with pleasure the most exacting bride, we adjourned to the piazza, leaving the men to the contemplation of their cigars. We were enthusiastic in our praise of the house and congratulated Kate in securing such a prize when, to our horror, she burst into tears and said, Oh, girls, it's a dreadful place. It's haunted. And then tearfully proceeded with the details until we all felt creepy and suggested the parlor and lights. It was not long afterwards that Kate discovered that Tom had also related the ghost story to the men that evening, to which Ned Harris said, Rat! And Bob Show laughingly remarked, Tom, old chap, you really shouldn't take your nightcap so strong. About the 1st of July, the climax came. The ghost walked again, this time taking not only the remaining pepper pot, but also a silver salt cellar. Evidently, he had a penchant for small articles, but unlike former times, everything on the sideboard was in the greatest disorder. Aunt Julia's salad bowl was found on the floor and not far away the cheese dish, with its contents scattered about. This time, one of the windows was found half open. A week later, a note came to me from Kate, saying that she and Tom had gone to Saratoga to spend the remainder of the season with her mother. The following spring, Tom received a note and parcel from Mrs. Boris, the owner of the house at Waterloo, which reads as follows. Dear Mr. Howard, I send you by express three articles of silver, which my wife suggests may belong to you, as they are marked with your initials, namely two silver pepper pots and a salt cellar. They were found the other day during the process of spring house cleaning in the rat hole behind the sideboard. I forgot to have the hole stopped up last spring or to caution you against the water rats. The great fellows will get you in, you know. Kind regards, Mrs. Howard. Very truly, John Bialik. The next season, the Ghost Club was organized, the badge being a small silver rat, bearing proudly aloft a tiny pepper pot. We thoughtfully offered Tom the presidency, but he declined with offended dignity from the effects of which I think he will never fully recover. That dear John letter really did it for him, huh? Yup, definitely did. You know, this actually hasn't been a bad evening after all. I say this has been a lot of fun. I say we do it again. I agree. Us monsters love telling stories. Yeah, I can definitely tell. And so we leave our pals in the midst of their own company and their own horror. Hopefully they'll be able to sleep tonight until the next monster adventure. This has been Monster Adventures, starring Marty Monster, Parsley, and Julius. This episode was written and produced by Matt Dingle, based on stories by Guy de Mupassant, from the compilation 25 Ghost Stories, compiled and edited by W. Bob Holland, available in the public domain. This program has been produced by Bingo Productions, Baltimore, Maryland. If you enjoy this, leave a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Speaking of feedback, if you'd like to contact us, you can. Just email us at bingopuppetroop at gmail.com. 
That last name is spelled B-I-N-G-E-L. Subscribe to our podcast on Anchor, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and more. And if you'd like to follow us on social media, our handles are in the description of this episode. Please join us again for another exciting adventure of Monster Adventures. Thanks for joining us.